0: Welcome to another episode of Axe the Blood God, U.S. Gamers' official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. Nadia is not with me today. Instead, I have Mike Williams, who reviewed The Outer Worlds.
1: Hello, hello. How's everybody doing today? I'm doing all right, Mike. Uh, how is review season treating you? Uh, review season is treating me just a-okay. I am surviving. I'm getting through it. I, it it'll be fine.
0: You knocked out a couple of big RPGs in just uh, under, like, maybe a week and a half?
1: I did indeed. I did indeed. I went back-to-back with Disco Elysium and uh, The Outer Worlds, uh, and they could not be two completely different types of RPGs, which is... uh, pretty interesting and great for the industry like more variety is great so i can't complain about that uh and it helps that both games are relatively short which is another thing i'm pretty happy about because uh, i'm uh, not not to if you want to build a 60 to 100 hour epic by all means but uh i'm increasingly finding that i don't have the time to play those types of games
0: yeah, I'm in the process of playing the weird games, like Death Stranding
1: and Shedmoo 3. Yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, it, like if you want to build a game that's, like, probably, what, 20 to 30 hours is, is the sweet spot now, I, I feel. Uh, I, I think that's uh, a good place to be, and especially with both of these games, uh, with Disco Elysium and The Outer Worlds, they feel like they're games that want you to play them multiple times, and that's really hard to do. When your game is like 60 hours long.
0: I don't play games multiple times
1: anymore. Yeah, yeah. We just don't have the time. There's way too many games.
0: Yeah, I I, well, it's not only that. I think that if I were outside the games industry, I would pick one RPG and just play it to death until I hit like the 100 hour mark or something like that and be like, okay, I'm good. Like, Witcher 3, many decisions to make. Probably I could play it again, but I don't see any particular reason to go back to it.
1: Yeah, I'm generally not the type of person that goes back to games or movies or television shows. Uh, not because I don't really love some stuff and I would like to go back, but just because there's always new stuff to experience. I'm not starved, and especially when we're sticking with just games or even just RPGs. Uh, Like, Nadia has been trucking away at uh, Trails of Cold Steel. I know you guys have talked about that, but, uh, like, I own all of the Trails of Cold Steel games, but I have yet to actually start playing them. (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to talk about The Outer
0: Worlds in just a minute, and also we have an interview to run with Leonard Boyarski and the rest of the development team, in which we... Ask them about a bunch of questions about the Outer Worlds. So that's in the second half, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, if you want to follow the blog out on social media, I'm at the underscore catbot, Nadia is at Nadia Oxford, and Mike is at Automatic Zen. I strongly recommend that you check out our newsletter, which comes out every single Wednesday, courtesy of Nadia, which includes some thoughts on what is happening with RPGs and also rounds up some RPG news just for you. And also, here's a really cool thing: we're doing an extra life marathon on uh, November 2nd to raise hot money for a children's hospital in the San Francisco Bay Area. We've got a fairly modest goal, so we'll be working toward uh, our news. Our reporter Eric Van Allen is spearheading that one, and it's gonna be a lot of fun. I think a bunch of us are gonna be on the stream at various points, and we're gonna have a bunch of guests. And yeah, like come in, tune in for a good cause. Okay. Let's talk some Outer Worlds, Mike. You gave it a 4 out of 5. Um, we had actually talked about maybe going for a 3.5 out of 5. Like, we were kind of on the fence about that. Why did you ultimately go up rather than
1: down? Uh, I went up because I felt pretty good about it. Like, we talked about the the 3.5 or, or 4, and we were sort of... I was fuzzy about it. But when I slept on it and I woke up the next morning, I was like, Nah, this is a 4. I, like, I really like this game. And... Uh, as I said in the review, I think probably most of the waffling was down to the fact that I feel like it doesn't have a ton of ambition. Uh, it is very much that same Fallout New Vegas style, which itself was just sort of a transposition of the original Fallout games, brought forward into 2019. And they, you can tell when they were designing the outer worlds that they were scoping it very specifically they were like this is the game we're going to make and these are the resources we have and we're not going to go any farther than that on one hand you kind of you're a little saddened and you sort of expect maybe a little more you expect some sort of specific innovation or even rethinking the rpg genre but at the end of the day this is also not really the kind of game that you get all that often. And, I mean, like, even if you count... Like, I don't particularly like Fallout 4. I, I know it has its, its fans, like you, Kat. Um, But even if you count Fallout 4, it's been years since that came out. So, like, The Outer World is sort of this... Uh, almost a curio. It's just like, oh, this is really well-executed... On some very old, very straightforward ideas. On one hand, I was kind of like, ah, 3.5 because maybe like, I, I would want a little bit more. But at the end of the day, I like really liked it. Like, it, it. It works very well.
0: I find the perception around this game a little weird. So I was on Kind of Funny the other day. And I think they bring a more mainstream perspective uh, to this particular series which I, I think is totally fine. Um, but there's a lot of talk about the shooting, actually, which I think is not a huge part of the game, I think it's fair to say. Um, but I think people are going to necessarily zero in on it because I think people always seem to zero in on the, the action segments. And I think my point that I was kind of making about The Outer Worlds was that the... Shooting in the Outer Worlds is way the heck better than it ever was in Fallout and no it doesn't rise to the level of say Doom 2016 or thereabouts but it doesn't really need to because a lot of this is about the the writing and the quest design I want to say.
1: Yes, and and uh, on that point about the action the shooting the shooting actually is, is is decent. Um and early on when I was playing I was kind of like man I don't really like this this combat system per se, because it's just shooting. Uh, and they have what is called the time uh, dilation system, which slows down time. But one thing that they don't tell you, and I, I pointed this out in the review, and they should highlight it a little bit more, is that the time dilation system just slows down time. If you haven't put enough points into certain skills so you have to put points into either melee or range to unlock the system that adds negative status effects to enemies if you target certain parts of the enemy's bodies which is a very vats thing um, from the fallout games but without it it's just hitting the button slows down time and i was like I was really confused and kind of bored until I had put enough points into range to unlock the system. And then it was like, oh, okay. So when I, you know, jump into combat now, uh, I'll aim for the head. If I see a heavy guy, I'm gonna, you know, shoot them in the leg, which adds cripple, which prevents them from moving. Uh, like, you you gain more strategy once you've unlocked that in either melee or ranged and the fact that they didn't point that out, I, 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 I would think it was a problem. I could understand if a game designer didn't like, hey, you should read it, because it is right there if you actually read those skills. But I had focused early on on all of my conversational skills, uh, on sneaking and stuff like that. So I didn't know, probably, in, I'd say, until a good six to eight hours into the game. So uh, it, it's one of those things where I, I think the combat is actually better than a lot of people would initially believe. But to your original question, no, I don't think that's necessarily what Obsidian designed this game to be about. The combat is just the stuff that you do in between all the stuff that I think they felt really mattered, which was conversational dialogue and stuff like that.
0: Another point that I made on the the Kind of Funny podcast was that I kind of felt like It's a disservice to this game to compare it to Fallout New Vegas, a game that had a much larger budget and maybe a larger team um, and a larger scope, ultimately. Uh, You mentioned that this game really goes out of its way uh, to control its scope and be a lot more narrow. I would say it has a lot more in common maybe with the original Fallout than it does with kind of the newer Bethesda games. And it may be an example of... How this game, how the expectations for this game could come back around to bite it, because people might come in and go, "Well, this isn't Fallout New Vegas."
1: Yeah, and I mean, part of the expectations, like it's it's very each of the areas in the game. Like when you go to a new planet, you are sent to a specific area of that planet, and they're pretty small from what we've sort of come to expect in terms of open world being a commonplace thing. Um, But I think part of that is, uh and I pointed that out in an article that came out last week by the time you hear this. The game itself is not all that buggy because uh, uh, when we talked to Obsidian earlier in the year, they were like, yeah, we, we're keeping the scope low. We know what we can do. But that allowed them to have a playable version of the game up much quicker, which allowed for a lot more bug testing a lot. So it's it's a very smaller focused rpg but it also sidesteps a lot of the uh obsidian uh being known for having a lot of buggy games that are usually more ambitious
0: what do you think of the actual quest design because i think that a lot of people would point to that as one of the main selling points of the game
1: uh it's it's very good they have a lot of different options uh, a lot of different twists and turns and directions that you can take it that are not just a sort of binary A-B path. Uh, you can definitely tell that uh Ken and Boyarsky, who have worked on other games in a similar vein, like led this team. Talked previously about Vampire, uh, the Masquerade Bloodlines, which they also worked on, which has that same vibe. Just every time you enter a situation where you can make significant choices there's a lot of different ways you can go as you uh, reach each different branch and and it feels good and meaningful and fun i just uh and i also enjoy that their outer worlds definitely seems to know what it is like from the very beginning of the game it nails its tone and nails what type of game it's going to be for the entire thing.
0: Yeah, I look at... Uh, it sounds like there are some reasonably good choices, interesting choices to be made. Uh, during your review, you give a big rundown about kind of the ways that you can play both ends against the middle and that kind of thing uh, when dealing with people and how there's often a lot of kind of gray area and when dealing with people. One thing I've kind of learned about as designers is that <laughs> they don't really go in for black and white, when it comes to defining the good and evil in those, uh, their particular games, which really sets it apart from Modern Warfare, which is coming out uh, today, I gotta say.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's definitely, they try to make it so that any time that you're uh, facing a situation, and usually one side of that situation is a very corporate model, they usually try to make sure that the other side... There are issues that exist on that side as well, such as uh, sometimes in some quests you'll be like, oh, do I, uh, one quest is like, do I tear down the corporation in this specific area? Which sounds good on the surface, partially ignores the people who already work and live under that corporation and are fine with it. And the idea is, yes, you can free them from that corporate drudgery but then you are essentially kicking them out in the world and saying bear with it there are a lot of decisions in the outer worlds that are like that that are like oh neither of these is particularly great and that's something that the game tends to hammer over and over again even if, as it's fairly anti-corporate in its overall tone and messaging
0: what did you think of the how the campaign the companions were handled? Uh,
1: they're pretty good. I, I honestly so some of the later ones are a little bit more interesting. Like uh, Sam, who is a cleaning robot that has been repurposed as a uh, soldier. Like you, do, you're the one that does the repurposing. So all of his stuff is talking about cleaning, uh, and that's what he thinks he's doing. But he is attacking and getting rid of uh, marauders and other stuff like that. Uh, or Ellie, who is the one that they've, uh, that Obsidian used sort of as the face of the game, since your character couldn't be the face. Uh, and she definitely fits with the tone. Probably your early two companions, uh, Parvati uh, and a, another character I'm not going to mention for spoiler reasons, uh, are more grounded more a a little bit more realistic uh and i think also not only did i i prefer the later companions because they fit more with the tone i kind of miss the mass effect or dragon age thing where i would occasionally also run into more non-human companions because non-human characters give writers a chance to sort of explore some different ideas and the way that the outer world sort of constructs its world. You're pretty much just left with different flavors of people or automatons and you only have one automaton companion.
0: Yeah. uh, I don't know much about the companions, but one thing I do like is that they express their particular tastes uh, quite a bit more and will kind of ferociously disagree with you on certain points to the point of actually leaving
1: the party. Yeah, they will. Uh, I didn't get any to leave the party because I was usually fairly cognizant of what what their particular worldview was. But they will definitely hop in and either say stuff or sometimes you'll enter a conversation. They will have a conversation with whoever you're talking to before you start talking. Like, so they'll have a, a little interaction being like, oh, we know each other already. Uh, go screw yourself. Uh, but I'm here with this person. And so it does help flesh them out a little bit more. And, uh, I, I, I really like the system overall. I, it, really, the entire game is just like a great foundation. I just, I think, wanted a little bit more. And I'm not sure that's entirely fair. To the developer's intentions for it.
0: Do you think that uh, I think a lot of a lot of people have been saying that the Outer Worlds uh, adheres a little too stubbornly to old school RPG design. Do you think that's fair? Because I, I think that a lot of this design in this game is like pretty timeless. Ultimately, it's just it doesn't really have a lot of the scale that people might be expecting from a quote unquote big budget RPG.
1: Yeah, as I noted in the review and I I think part of the problem and I brought up Disco Elysium before is that uh, Disco Elysium is an indie RPG that sort of rethinks or recontextualizes certain RPG mechanics and ideas. And that's on the indie side. And then on the big budget side, you have the games with a huge scope and these big worlds and tons to explore even if Maybe not all of that exploration is meaningful. And then the Outer Worlds is somewhere in between both of those. So I I think you're right that the ideas behind it are very timeless. And I think in a world where Disco Elysium hadn't come first, the discussion around the Outer Worlds would be different. Hmm.
0: You think so? Because I don't think a lot of people are actually aware that Disco Elysium is a thing.
1: I don't think in terms of fans and and it's, it's always important to uh, put out that when you go to like fan, like you go to Reddit or you go to uh, Era and you go into these threads about the Outer Worlds, the conversation is different. I think critics are driving this sort of uh, idea that the Outer Worlds is a little bit older because critics are the ones that have come from Disco Elysium directly to Outer Worlds. Like, I mean, I played them back-to-back. And it's hard not to entirely compare them when that happens.
0: I don't think Disco Elysium will pick up Steam until it comes out on console. And even then, I have my doubts just because it's a tough sell to... Uh, isometric RPGs or top-down type RPGs can be a pretty tough sell. Now, granted, Divinity Original Sin managed to break that mold um, by getting a gigantic groundswell of uh,
1: support behind it. But even then, that wasn't until uh, the second game that it really, really took off.
0: Well, the original Divinity was quite popular still and got really phenomenal word of mouth. Um, But it's also more of a traditional RPG and doesn't lean as heavily on writing, I don't think.
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Divinity of Reginald like probably like 50-50. Like it's got some really good writing and it does uh, allow for some choices, but it's also pretty strong in the combat department uh, as well. So, yeah, go ahead.
0: I think maybe Disco Elysium will ultimately prove to be a better game, but The Outer Worlds is more accessible to mainstream players because it contextualizes the RPG stuff in a format that a lot of people understand, which is first-person shooter type thing, and that ultimately is why it garnered as much attention as it did. If The Outer Worlds looked like the original Fallout with the isometric view and everything, nobody would be talking about this game.
1: Uh, Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. And I I wouldn't necessarily go on... uh... Either being 100% better, I think I I rated Disco Elysium higher than The Outer Worlds, but ultimately they're trying to do two different things. They're two very different games, despite both being RPGs. Uh, and that's why I like I've, a lot of people have been like, ah, oh, you know... Out the worlds feels so, you know, straightforward and traditional and passe compared to Disco. And I'm like, well, but that it, it's trying to do a different thing. And again, the type of game that the Outer Worlds is, we don't have a lot of at all. Like, so I'm I'm gonna take what I got, especially when it's done as well as it is in the Outer Worlds.
0: I think the Outer Worlds taps into a real hunger among RPG fans who want this kind of first-person, big-budget RPG, but they don't want it to be as, quote-unquote, streamlined as Skyrim. Uh, I I think there's... I mean, you can appreciate this, Mike, because I think you're one of the strongest uh, critics of Bethesda on the entire team. There's a, like, built-up frustration from over the years over the way that Bethesda has kind of smoothed away a lot of the deeper, more interesting elements of the dialogue and also kind of they're still really buggy and they seem really dated and yet they're just outrageously successful cuz people are so hungry for that particular type of game and i think outer worlds has gotten as much attention as it has because people see it as the the counterweight to that the big budget open world first person rpg that actually has good writing and quest design and maybe outer worlds isn't going to Provide that right out of the gate, but perhaps a sequel will?
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, the, like, that's the thing. Uh, Bethesda, their games, and I don't particularly like them, but after talking with people for so long, like, I, I, I understand part of why it really works for people. I, I think Bethesda is a little weak on the uh, characterization and especially the thematic elements that sort of underpin. The original fallout games but what they excel in is sort of this wide open spaces and sort of really detailed like not necessarily mechanics but just the world there's so much stuff in it that you can touch and pick up and take different places there's so much of that and that is its own unique thing uh whereas the outer worlds i i, I feel like offers up some of that but then brings in that old like it's very clear thematically where the outer worlds is coming from
0: i think it's funny that bethesda seems to have gone out of their way to promote the outer worlds with their decisions
1: oh yeah no i wrote read a whole thing about that so with the fallout 76 of course they announced this week uh that they will add the fallout first subscription service and Fallout 76 isn't even entirely fixed. So, and then of course, uh, there's again, as going this week, the stories that Fallout 1st itself wasn't entirely working, which drives a lot of negative will, uh, like, I don't know what to call it, negative good way, but uh, a lot of negativity towards the Fallout brand as a whole and Bethesda's handling it. The Outer Worlds is like the perfect counterpoint to that. Even though when you talk to uh, anybody at Obsidian, they're, they're very quick to downplay that. Like, they're like, please don't, like, we're not like that. But the perception is the perception. It's, it's, it's uh, to a lot of people, the Fallout that should be.
0: It's the diametric opposite of Fallout 76. Fallout seventy six is a big, bloated online RPG with ridiculous microtransactions and like basically no storytelling whatsoever. Whereas the Outer Worlds is a single player, uh, much smaller RPG, a lot more sharper, a lot sharper, a lot more focused, with no micro tr- microtransactions and goes really in depth and granular with its storytelling.
1: Yeah, I mean, and it's missing most of the stuff that we've come to take from modern. The modern game industry, like y- you point out no microtransactions, there's no DLC, there's no like extra skins or anything like it's just, here's the game, here's the story, engage with what's here, it's done. And that's great.
0: <laughs> so yeah, Outer Worlds, I think that we can recommend it for sure. It's I think it's an RPG we're supporting, and I really hope that it gives enough bandwidth to um obsidian that they can successfully pitch in outer worlds two to microsoft as an xbox one exclusive
1: yeah and i and i definitely think they will like in part xbox two scarlet whatever <laughs> yeah and you definitely get the feeling that this was a a good foundation to start on and proof of concept right and if they can build on that with more resources and not blow it out too far they could have something pretty special on their hands
0: yeah, I like that it's a big budget game that's... I mean, it. so I did a replay watch. That's a series that we do around some games where we ask the developers what people should read, play, and watch before playing a particular game. And I just love Leonard Boyarsky and Tim Kaine because like, a lot of developers would be like, oh, I, th- I think you should watch Star Wars, you know? And they're like, well, why don't you try this sci-fi novel from 1906? About uh, the sun going out and people fighting the forces of darkness from the last readout. And also watch Brazil. And I'm like, you guys are really, like, okay, I'm going to do that. (laughs) And that just tells you what their mindset or where they're coming from or how they geek out about the assassination of William McKinley. Uh, They have a great sensibility. They bring a great sensibility to this particular series. Uh, A lot of people compare it to Futurama. And I don't think that's a mistake because... Uh, tim kane is a lot like somebody who would have written for uh futurama like david x cohen and both similarly nerdy i think and really appreciative of that particular genre so i hope that the outer world ultimately sells really well i think it will and that that is the foundation for the next level up okay mike thanks for coming on the show uh next we're going to have leonard Boyarsky on the show uh, to talk some more about The Outer Worlds, along with the narrative designer of The Outer Worlds. So don't go away, and we'll be right back. All right, now it's time to talk about The Outer Worlds with two people who worked on the actual game. And really quickly, can you just introduce yourself the audience. Sure. I'm Leonard
2: Bularski. I'm the co-game director. I'm Natai Podar. I'm a narrative designer.
0: This, uh, For Leonard, I mean, obviously you've been in the RPG space for a long time now. This is kind of a return to the limelight, though, in some ways, because you were at Troika and then you were at Blizzard and you were working on various games there, and you weren't as much in the limelight, I want to say, but uh, The Outer Worlds has been kind of a return for you.
3: What has that been like? Uh, it's been really nice, uh, you know. The outpouring of support from fans and people excited to play the game uh, has been great. Um, you know, you can hope for stuff like that, but you never know how people are going to react to um, to announcements like of our game. But, but it was ever since we announced, it's just been really a lot of positive support.
0: Did you pitch Outer Worlds to Obsidian, or was it kind of the other way around?
3: Um, Obsidian wanted to make. Um, another first-person RPG and they approached him who was working there at the time just as a programmer, <coughs> excuse me, um, and they had a basic idea for a space uh, sci-fi RPG um, and that was what they approached him with and uh, fortunately for me he told them that he needed me to uh, you know partner with him to make the game because we're really good complementary uh, skill sets to each other. Uh, he's very good in the system side and the gameplay side and I'm really good on the story side and the art side. And together, we were very good building worlds, um, just the basic concepts of the worlds and fleshing those things out. So um, they were obviously uh, liked that idea, and they hired me to help him make the game.
0: When it was announced, I think last year at about this time, it really exploded, I felt like, on social media and elsewhere. I felt like there were a lot of really high expectations around it. Yeah. Oh, what was that like for you guys? Like, how did it impact the team?
3: I, it was from my point of view. It was really great. It was exciting. It was like I said, you never know how people can react to these things, and it was just very, um, you know, just 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 great to hear that. Um, we immediately tried to go in a little bit of a hype control mode because people were, you know, expecting you know this hundred hour epic, and we were like, well, we're making a smaller game. Um, it's going to have all the elements people are expecting from this game, but you know, we're a smaller team, smaller budget, um, so we just wanted to 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 control those expectations, but from talking to people who have played it um, a lot of people really like the fact that it's shorter um, that they don't feel like they have to you know, devote their lives to finishing the game and they are all you know, a lot of them are very excited to get right back into it and try a different character um, how's it been from your side yeah you? I
2: know that when I started working on this we didn't really expect it to blow up we kind of uh, we went in with the attitude of saying well this is something that fans have kind of been asking for and it's something we want to do. So uh let's give it our best shot. Um let's make something. I think uh when we got that prime position at the VGA, I think gosh, was that the end of twenty eighteen?
3: Yeah, it was December. Yeah. That was
2: that was a big night. Like I I remember I was actually in the office working on some writing and I had that open in another window. And when that went live and all the comments flooded in and all the responses came in like people were losing their minds. It was it was great. Like, to me, it is really energizing to see so many people excited for kind of a traditional RPG. I've, I've always believed that most people who play video games tend to love role playing as a thing. Maybe they just haven't been introduced to it yet in the right way. And it was just, it was awesome seeing this become so immediately well received.
0: But at the same time, it kind of ingrained this idea that it's like, well, it's going to be Fallout New Vegas right here. Like that must have been kind of rough on you guys.
2: Yeah, and I think we did a we did a we did a good job of of uh, of clarifying what the game really is in the months following that announcement. We were very upfront about the size, the scope of this game, but. Um, the budget we're working with, and, and what our roots really are. Like, yes, Obsidian is well known for Fallout New Vegas, and there's a lot of New Vegas in the DNA of this game. Um, but it is a game that stands on its own feet, and it's trying to do its own thing.
0: I mean, so Leonard, obviously, he's worked on Fallout and, uh, you know, Bloodlines and everything. But I would love to know, like, what kind of uh, history you bring to this project? My,
2: um, This is my first project. Wow, okay. Um, yes, I know. I say that to myself every day (laughs) it's a very good first project to work on i I work on a team with some i just my team is amazing i I have the utmost respect for them the narrative team i work with is very experienced like they've worked on pillars they've worked on tyranny they've worked on uh, like everything that came before that and um the learning process and kind of leaning on the other designers to figure out what this game is about and to kind of bring it to life has just been invigorating
0: what have you kind of learned from Leonard and Tim and the rest of the team, who a lot of whom who are RPG veterans? I want to say
2: um, a couple things. I think I think the big thing I've learned in terms of uh, in terms of the work that I do that it's not enough to just write well. You have to be very disciplined when it comes to game design. Um, there is a there's a certain methodology towards getting everything done. Everything has to be well documented, well structured, bug free. Um, so that kind of approach that's been a real learning process too. I've also just been exposed to different elements of game design that i am very happy to work on that personally excite me like being a part of the vo process was awesome i just after you spent a year or more doing the writing and then you sit down and you see these very talented voice actors bring your work to life it's it's humbling it's exciting um i love that kind of stuff what's your favorite rpg oh you're really gonna make me pick mm-hmm Um, I I am a fan of some of the old-school JRPG stuff. I loved Final Fantasy Tactics, I love Final Fantasy VI. Right now, I think the more recent stuff that I love, I'm a fan of Mass Effect 2 and uh, Bioware's work in general. I am over the moon about Shadowbringers. I think it's one of the best things that have happened uh, in the MMORPG space and actually illustrate that there is a strong desire for and reception toward excellent storytelling. It's not just something that is purely the purview of old-school RPGs. It's something pretty much everybody wants.
0: Yeah, that's the thing with The Outer Worlds, right? Where so many of these big open-world games are more about player agency and everything. And, I mean, Fallout 4 and Fallout New Vegas have some really excellent individual quests, but they aren't quite as story-driven, I want to say, as The Outer Worlds, which seems to just really put a premium on dialogue choices and all of that stuff. Absolutely.
3: I mean, that's just part of <clears> Obsidian's <throat> DNA and mine and Tim's DNA. We just love um, making a game where players can play any way they want to, and the game feels like it's supporting it. Um, we don't ever want the players to feel punished for choices they make. Um, but if you make certain choices, like killing everyone, the game is going to react to that, and you're, you're making your life more difficult. But, you know, uh, the fact that the game supports that or supports... You know, just stealthing through areas or, or killing people or talking through quests. Um, all of that stuff, to me, is very rewarding in RPG design, and I feel like we're RPG evangelists. Mm-hmm. Um, we think that um, the more people get exposed to like that, that kind of game, the more um, the, the, uh, the genre will grow, the fan base will grow. Because we're just, to me, that's always been, you know, the ultimate of a, of a computer game. I mean, obviously there's action elements and that, that part of it, but storytelling in video games to me is, is some of the best storytelling is when you're driving the story as a player.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. Our attitude uh, in the design room, when we're actually documenting our quests and putting this game together is we think of ourselves as playing with the player. There's very much this conceptual attitude of let's treat the player like they're a guest at our DM table and we're rolling the dice for them and we're sh- we're showing this adventure to them for them. It's a story that belongs to them and we are allowing it to happen. And we do that through our emphasis on dialogue. Um, we like to let the player role play as much as they possibly want and also to respect their choices as much as we can.
0: That's something that goes back to Fallout yeah. 80s CRPGs, yeah. like all the way back to, I don't know, D&D in the 70s, right? Yeah.
2: It is. uh, There is a lot of... I think the tradition of tabletop as it informs RPG design is very much alive in Obsidian. It's not just uh, Tim and Leonard who are very much into that, um, but also the uh, designers who worked on Pillars and Tyranny definitely drew from
3: that D&D tradition. It was just, um, for me, when... I first heard about D and D. Ironically, I never got a chance to play it when I was younger because I didn't know have a group of people who played it, and it's very difficult to start up a group uh, to play when you're trying to read the rules and going, "Okay, I, you know, took all this time to make a character. Let's play in 15 minutes, and everyone's dead because it's very punishing. You don't understand about massaging the rules as you play." But ironically, that also that gave me this kind of way more story driven, uh, way more like kind of like how we've developed games, like that you can really define a character in an exciting world in an exciting way. Um, just thinking about how that would play out in a game is was something that really sparked my imagination early on.
0: I've told this story a few times on this podcast, but my first tabletop experience was in Shadowrun. Oh. And that game is a very... It's a little like Outer Worlds, actually, in yes. that it's very conversation-driven, like your choices make a big difference. And I was just like... I, I'm the worst person. I was just like, well, wow, I mean, heavily armed gang, it's all right. We'll just go in guns blazing. That did not work out so well. <laughs> there were many, joi- many ways to solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. Guns blazing was not one of them. Yeah.
2: That's, that's one of our pillars of quest design is there have to be many ways to approach whatever quest you're on. Um, you should not be forced to do something purely through combat. If you have built your character to be a diplomat, And there should be something you can do through speech that will, if not get you through the quest, then certainly make your path easier.
0: I was having a conversation with one of the designers a little while ago about being evil in the Outer Worlds. And what an interesting kind of path that can be. Because if you are just determined to go out and kill everybody, that becomes really self-destructive. But somehow you guys have made it so... Even if somebody is
3: determined to kill everybody, they can still finish the game. Yeah, your game is much shorter because you're not going to be doing a whole lot of side quests. (laughs) But we made the main quest so that you can finish it, even if you kill the NPCs before even talking to them. Um, You know, obviously, you have a ship's computer. You can't kill her because she's kind of driving some of the stuff and she's a computer. Um, But that, you know, that's just always been the holy grail for us is just letting players play however they want. And the other interesting thing about that, obviously that's there's no question that that's an evil playthrough but we also give you the option to join with the antagonists of the board who who do feel very evil and I'm not going to say they're not but when you try to join with them or do you do join with them uh, they have reasons for what they're doing we wanted it to feel like okay given the circumstances this isn't a ridiculously evil decision it might be very um, leaning in that direction but they have their reasons and that's kind of across the board when we write NPCs um, even ones who may be espousing things that we personally don't agree with, we want them to feel like real people, uh, granted in an absurd situation, but that have real motivations and that that, um, have a reason for doing what they're doing and not just because it seemed like the game needed somebody in that position.
0: When I look at your body of work and your and Tim's body of work through the years, it always seems like you've been fascinated and repelled by marketing and branding. (laughs) Yes. Like going back to the original Fallout, and then yeah. I mean, there was a strong strain of that in Bloodlines as well. I feel like, and then now here in Outer Worlds,
3: which I mean,
0: kind of an anti-capitalist screed, I want to say.
1: Well,
3: you know, I've I've often said I'd be fairly uh, hypocritical if I'm doing these press tours trying to get people to buy my game. It's all about the evils of capitalism. <laughs> um, you know, I think you can take anything to bad extremes, and I think if you give yourself over to any ideology so completely that you're not considering things or just blindly following a, a, a creed or a belief system or whatever it is that you're not making your own decisions. And that's kind of you know, the f- free will of a human being um, to determine what your life is going to be like if you're so fortunate to live in a society that allows that. Um, and one of the deeper themes in this game that we've explored even more, I think this has kind of been a theme going throughout most of our games but consciously we're exploring it is, you know, whoever controls the narrative of your life is kind of controls you, you know, they don't have to have a gun to your head if they get you to believe what they want you to believe. Um, now granted there's, there's great, um, institutions that, that maybe, you know, have a belief system that people buy into that isn't, they don't have evil, uh, intent, um, or that are very good things for people. But if you've given up control of, of, of your, um, how you view the world, you're at other people's mercy, basically.
2: That's really how we designed the antagonists, the board in this game, is they are not necessarily, although there is an element of them to this, they're not necessarily the um, militant police who holds everyone down with a gun. They have just conditioned everybody to listen and obey, and they kind of take their service for granted. And by exploring that, we give the player the opportunity to kind of like push back and to be the one single hero, the one person who is not necessarily bound by their system. So that kind of exceptionalism, I feel, is very exciting as a player. Um, the coolest thing about playing in a dystopian setting is you get to be the one with the big hammer that can choose to smash things. Um,
3: and that can be very satisfying. <laughs> I think that um, the most... <laughs> I hadn't even thought about this before. You, you just brought it up in the way that you did. Uh, one of the things that's probably so appealing about um, advertising and, and marketing and corporations that appeal, it keeps me and Tim keep coming back to is because, you know, Tim, we've often said, Tim has very silly humorous sense of, uh, sense of the world and, and he loves that kind of silly thing. And I'm a little bit more dark humor and a little bit more pessimistic about things. And advertising has both of those in, you know, kind of in, in, its, in their DNA. Um, you know, they're selling this great thing, whatever the most fantastic thing in the world that you have to have is that they're trying to get you to buy Um, So on the surface, it's very happy and very much like, oh, look at this beautiful life you can have. But there's something a little bit insidious about, um, you know, modern advertising and trying to convince people that they really need these things. So it's ironic that that very much (laughs) kind of encapsulates uh, the combination of our worldviews and how we like to approach designing things.
0: Yeah, you can really see the juxtaposition of those two kind of outlooks in this game because Tim, I mean... There's a strong strain of Futurama in this game, Yes, right? definitely, there very definitely much is. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I played the first hour or mm-hmm. thereabouts um, during a preview event a little while ago, and I was like, oh sure. my god, like, just the vibe of this, the colors, the oh, yeah. designs of the ships and the enemies and everything. feels So Futurama. And yeah,
2: I'm, like, a, I'm a pretty big fan of Futurama and Simpsons, so if given free reign to do humorous stuff, I think some of that is going to come out. Um, but we also try to remember that... There needs to be an undercurrent of something like disturbing and dark and unsettling beneath the fluff and the humor. And I think that is what makes The, the Outer Worlds' style so unique, as we combine them both in a pretty effective way.
0: Yeah, I mean, Leonard, supposedly you were the one who came up with the idea of the end of Fallout,
3: where the, the Vault Dweller gets exiled back into the desert, right? Yeah, it came out of a conversation that me and Jason Anderson, our, our third Troika brother, um, had when we were. I was personally supposed to be doing the end movie... And I'm like, what am I going to do? It's it a big party when the vault dweller gets back to the vault. I'm like, what am I supposed to show, like balloons and people like having a party? <laughs> at that, that doesn't sound like a very interesting thing to portray. And then we're like, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll tell some sort of story there. And then as we just talked about it, we came to the very quickly came to the conclusion. There's no way that they would let you back in the vault. They were so xenophobic. Um, so it's very interesting how... We had already laid all the groundwork for that, and it was like I was almost subconscious that we hadn't you know that we hadn't planned the end to come out that way. but once it occurred to us, we didn't think that there was any way to end the game but that way. Um, Tim was a little bit hesitant at first, um, but we were able to convince him that, that it would be a very impactful ending, and, and I'm glad we did because I, I personally think that that is just a, just a very um, haunting ending to a game to, to feel like you've you're the, yes, you're the hero. But you've paid the price for being the hero. Mm-hmm.
0: And then the other thing you seem to love is alternate histories, because yes. in Fallout, I mean, it's not really an—I I suppose it's an alternate history where we never discover the microchip. I want to yes, say yes,
3: transistors, microchips. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> which is funny because that came after the fact. I just—I just really wanted to do a bunch of 1950s, 1940s-looking art with a lot of <laughs> vacuum tubes, and then Tim's—we started talking about how. You know, if they didn't make things with, um, with, with uh, miniaturization, or miniaturized electronics, that those would resist EMP pulses better. And, and oh, what if they never d- even discovered the microchip? Um, so it was really driven by tone and art. Um, and that's kind of actually how it worked on this game as well. Um, we really started getting fascinated with the kind of robber barons in turn of the century, you know, mining towns, how they control the, their workers' lives from cradle to grave. And once we started talking about that, we started talking about different ways of having an alternate kind of history. I mean, I love the retro stuff. I love excuses for making things feel very analog and feel very, um, you know, just chunky machinery. Um, I just personally have always loved that feel. I mean, I love the use and, and ease of use of modern electronics and the stuff we design would be horrible to have to use, but it just looks so much cooler.
0: And then the rumor in The Outer Worlds, consistent rumor, and people seem to treat it as gospel, is that it's an alternate history where Will, William McKinley survives
3: the assassin's bullet. Well, what's really funny about that is, so kind of like with the transistor thing in Fallout, um, we first, Tim started talking about very Futurama-esque um, corporations, and I started talking about you know the, the sociological part of that, and we meshed those things together. And then we were like, oh, well, if the corporations kind of like, how did corporations run this rampant? Um, what would have happened to create this? And originally we were thinking more about the science because our science is a little bit different in the outer worlds. It stops at the, there's no quantum level. It stops at like atoms and and, and uh, at that level of, of science. And so we're like, oh, it's it's before quantum mechanics. So maybe it's like early 20s, like when uh, uh, Einstein came out with his theory of relativity. So that's kind of where we were pinning it. But we hadn't really figured out. Any details, and then as we got more into it, and it became obvious that we were going to have one group that was at least called anarchists by the people who were against them, and um, other things that were going on with this with the world. um, It just started to occur to me that you know Teddy Roosevelt, at least in what they teach you in history class, has this big reputation for having busted up the trusts in the early 20th century, and he was never ever supposed to be president they put him in to be vice president to get rid of him and then ironically an anarchist killed mckinley so we're just like well this is this is perfect this is obviously what happened in this world and we hadn't really we talked about it a little bit internally we hadn't built a timeline from there to the to, to now what the now of the outer worlds is um, but we just thought that was an interesting jumping off point and then after we had it been announced for a while we saw on a forum that one of the fans said well obviously This happened when Teddy Roosevelt, this split off when Teddy Roosevelt became president. And we just were so uh, tickled by the fact that somebody came up, came to the same conclusion that we did, that we started talking about it. Um, It was really just a little backstory detail that wasn't supposed to be a huge thing in the game or anything, but it was weird how it just kind of really fell into place with what we were talking about.
0: McKinley is such a hilarious poll because he's virtually unknown today. (laughs)
3: And he did. I, I think I'm thinking of the right one. Yeah, like he was killed by his doctors, basically trying mm. to save him. Um, it's just, it's all, it's almost very outer worldy in that. Very outer
2: <laughs> Um There are interesting medical practices in this game, and most of them have like a maybe sixty-seven percent chance of not killing <laughs> you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> On the the front of making choices and dialogue choices and everything. Um, I'm not going to get into spoilers too much, but there's a pretty big one early on, and I would even say that there was, it reminds me of a similar choice in Fallout 3, and I assume that you can probably guess what I'm talking about. And I'm a little bit curious, like, why why front-load the game was such a big choice?
3: Well, we really wanted to kind of introduce the, um, the choice and consequences very early on, and it was also a way of us tutorializing it a little bit. Um, Showing you that you're at certain points. You're going to have to make these choices. There's no easy way out Um, There, you know, it ends up being in a gray morally gray area And you know when you first meet these two groups of of people It's kind of seems a little cut and dried. but the diggy the more you dig into it The more it seems a little bit of a gray area and you're not quite sure and then what your companion kind of chimes in at a certain point um, it just feels like I mean, those our game is based around that kind of thing, so it, it only felt natural to have the first area revolve around something like that.
2: Yeah, um, since I, I wrote most of the Emerald Vale area, uh, that area was designed to be a microcosm of the game itself. Um, the two factions who are at odds uh, in Emerald Vale—they—they um, there are analogous, not I don't want to say factions, but like arguments that are present in the entire game that kind of fit those two factions, the the narrative of this entire area slowly descending into chaos and only having one tiny area which is habitable where everybody tells themselves a particular narrative is also expressed in a larger game. In the end, you have to make a choice whether you go one way or another way, and there are good arguments for going either way. and that itself is a precursor for what you do in the entire game. So I kind of wanted to take this little starting area, Emerald Vale, and have it encapsulate most of the game, not just because I think it would, I think it would work pretty well narratively, but it's also a good way to tutorialize what our game is actually about, not just in gameplay, uh, not just in art and exploration, but also in narrative.
0: Newtown is often kind of seen as one of the most famous examples of Making a hard choice early on in a game, and it, it, I wouldn't say put Fallout Three on the map, but nobody would shut up about it when it first came out, and it's still brought up frequently. As one of the creators of Fallout, like I'm curious, what what do you think of the nuketown thing?
3: Uh, you mean megaton?
0: Megaton, my bad. Yeah. No, I'm,
3: sorry, I'm like because there is one nuketown megaton. Yeah. Um, I don't know, I I think that it was visually impressive, I feel like there needed to be maybe a little bit more motivation behind why somebody wanted to uh, nuke it, Um, but I mean I loved playing Fallout 3, it was the first time I got to play a Fallout game that I had, or Fallout RPG that I hadn't been involved in developing, Um, so that was very interesting and I was a little bit jealous that they were making a first person full 3D um, Fallout and I wasn't the one behind that, um, at least artistically. Um, But it was one of the most (laughs) surreal things was running around and seeing, you know, on the walls of vaults. Because I did the vault tile set and a lot of the uh, scenery objects in in the vault in the original Fallout. You know, I'm running down a hallway and I'm seeing things that I, you know, made in five minutes just to fill up this little corner of a vault. And wow, it's oh my God, they're all over the place. They've been recreated in full 3D. Um, So that was very surreal. Um, But I enjoyed Fallout 3, I thought I thought it was a very interesting, different take than we would have done. Um, but it would, like I said, it was great to be able to play a, a Fallout game I had no idea where it was going. It's really interesting
0: that you mention needing to have motivation, because I think that in Bethesda, it's like, you are in the game. You have been put right here. Be evil. Be like, just be a total psychopath if you want. So I think a lot of people might not even be thinking about motivation necessarily because they're just going out to be like, well, I'm going to blow up this uh, this town. It's going to be great.
2: And if that's what you want to do, that's yeah. that's great. A lot of that's people loved advice. it. I mean,
3: you know. I'm yeah, sorry. it's
2: just um, motivation. We try to treat our NPCs the way we would write real characters because we feel like that would, A, make them more memorable, and B, also engender some interesting choices and interactions with that NPC. Um, so in Emerald Vale, we're always thinking about the, the real, actual motivations behind, like, the main characters behind either of those factions. We're not we're not just treating them as like spokesperson for faction A or spokesperson for faction B. We're like, if this character was a person, how would they feel? How would they react to their situation? And what kind of an argument would they make to the player to try and get them on their side? And if those motivations are believable, then hopefully uh, the choice is a little more interesting, a little more difficult.
3: There's, there's no pure system in the world, a political system, a religious system, because they don't exist in the absence of people. There's always people driving them for whatever their you know reasons are. So for us, you know, if you're going to have somebody espousing a philosophical system, um, you can't or religion, you can't remove that person from the equation. Then because then they just become like a signpost or a, a very cardboard cutout. Like here's the person who's going to explain this theory to you, um, and that's not how it feels in the real world because that's not how it actually exists. Um, so I think that's a big part of it that people don't often talk about. Um, People talk about, you know, what systems are better um, economically, religiously or all that. But at the end of the day, it's people who are driving these things, you know, and good people are going to do hopefully try to do good things. And people who have who have nefarious uh, ends in mind are going to do bad things. um, But no one's purely good or no one's purely evil. And it just resonates, at least we feel, um, much more with people if you have motivations that are believable in an absurd situation, obviously.
0: So when I look at The Outer Worlds, I see a very tightly wound, tightly designed uh, RPG in the way that uh, the quests have multiple outcomes. Obviously, it's developed by a multiple team and everything, but at the same time, like has a somewhat smaller scope and everything. Um, Ultimately, what are your hopes for The Outer Worlds? Do you see it as a a jumping off point into something bigger?
3: I hope so. I mean, I would love that. One of the things we did when we were originally designing it um, was talk about what other kind of stories we could put in this in this future in this setting. Um, you know, the Halcyon Colony is only one colony out of hundreds. Um, I don't think we've actually said the number. We've come up with a couple so far, but um, the uh, so that gives us a lot of playgrounds to play in. Um, one of the things we've said about Fallout. I mean, I, I love the Fallout setting. Um, but even in Fallout 2, we were already like, well, we have to do something different. So we pushed it you know, 70 years later, 80 years later. Um, but there's only so far you can go with that before it's not Fallout anymore because it has to be post apocalyptic. And then there's still a lot of really cool things you can do there. But this is just a much more wide open um, you know, tapestry or, or, or palette to play with because um, it's got, you know, we've set up this really cool system, we've set up this really cool universe. Um, we could take it any way we want, any way, you know, the kind of stories we want to tell can, like, dictate certain things about what, what colonies we visit in the future. Um, it just feels to me like it's got a lot of a lot of uh, places you can go with it and a lot of different things you can explore.
0: And um, when did you guys decide to put it on Nintendo Switch?
3: Uh, that was, I don't remember who, who first came up with that. That was external to the team. Um, and we were not sure you could do it, but then, you know, they started coming out with with all these different games on the Nintendo Switch, we're all, wow, that's great. And then we saw uh, a proof of concept from the external team who's doing it, and we were very, very surprised. Mentioned or, or talked much more about it than, than just that it's gonna be on the Switch and it looks like it's gonna be cool, but um, so we'll be talking about that a later date, obviously.
0: Looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, The Outer Worlds is out later this month, and I, I believe in just nine days, I think it's out on October 25th. October yeah. 25th, yep. yeah. it's going to be on the Epic Games Store, it's going to be on PS4, and I think it's going to be on Xbox One.
3: Yeah, it's also Game Pass and the, and mm. the, the Windows 10 Store.
0: Yes, yes. I, I'm always trying to remember, it's like, okay, which platforms <laughs> is it going to be on? Because yeah. it's getting more and more complicated. Is, Pretty yeah. soon, Stadia is going to be out here. Yeah. one like, well, more to remember, but uh, it's... I'm really looking forward to playing this one because I do feel like there was a little bit of a a gap being left. Be- yeah. Because Bethesda was filling that gap with the first person RPG, but they have a very specific style and everything. Sure. And I think everybody was kinda of hoping for an alternative that was like had a similar amount of freedom and but also at the same time had that particular look and particular feel. So Outer Worlds is here. I'm looking forward to playing it.
3: Great. But, thank you. I hope you yeah. enjoy it.
0: All right. Thanks guys for coming on the show and good luck.
3: Thank, right. you, thank you very much.
0: All right. That was a fun interview. Thanks to everybody for coming on the show. And if you go over to us gamer, you can find our review. You can find our replay watch. Mike wrote a bit about how it's refreshingly bug free. And also we got a bunch of guides. If you are needing some help on the outer worlds, uh, other things that you should be checking out, uh, When this podcast comes out, uh, we should have a pretty in-depth look back on the legacy of No Russian, if you're into Call of Duty. I had a chance to play Shenmue 3 and captured some footage from it and put it into an article. It was pretty harsh on Shenmue 3. I apologize. I think my main problem with it is that where the original Shenmue was very forward-thinking, Shenmue 3 just is way too focused on nostalgia and being a throwback to the original Dreamcast. And in that respect, I think it's contrary to the spirit of the original games, which really sought to create a living, breathing Digital world that really kind of immersed you really deeply, and yeah. So maybe go read my thoughts on that. We'll have a lot more coming out next week as well. But in the meantime, uh, Axel Blagod US Gamer Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore Capot. Mike is at Automatic Zen, and of course Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. We're going to be doing an Extra Life Marathon on Saturday, November 2nd, 24 hours for a good cause. Come and throw some money toward a San Francisco children's hospital while watching us play video games. Okay, lots more RPGs to talk about, including a console RPG quest. It's almost time for another one. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. I've been Cat Bailey, and until next time, happy adventuring.